The Sermon on the Mount. Though it was delivered on the side of a hill one day in Israel, its power, truth, and simplicity have pierced through every century since. His divinely inspired words are not only timeless, they are timely for us. We hope you will join us as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Well, good morning. Y'all ready for the Sermon on the Mount? If you have a Bible, get to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be for really the most of the duration of this uh, fall semester. And just to give you a little bit of uh, honesty to put my cards on the table, uh, this is going to get us uh, to December and we'll be halfway done. We're going to do some Advent stuff and then we'll pick up and finish uh, the second half of Sermon on the Mount in the spring. Uh, So today, brand new series on a very old uh, sermon uh, in the fourth century, Augustine or Augustine, depending how you want to uh, pronounce his name, uh, by, by my studies, was the first one to actually call this sermon the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's uh, three different chapters. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 covers this sermon that Jesus gave very long ago that's still incredibly uh, timely today for us. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump into the sermon itself that's going to carry us for quite a few weeks. Uh, number one, Jesus preached this sermon, okay? That should be enough to kind of grab our and help us to lean in because um, the one who had been in heaven with God forever for all of eternity past, uh, who declared that he is the word of God made flesh, opens his mouth and preaches. And when God preaches a sermon as the Godhead in God in flesh as a man, uh, that's going to be a good sermon. Amen. Uh, I was a student at DBU many, many years ago, and um, there was a, a, a gentleman that came in. He was a pastor, and ironically, he was a pastor from Midland, uh, and he came in to preach chapel for us one day at DBU, and I was sitting there as a student, and I remember him giving the intro to his sermon, and he said, guys and gals, this is going to be the most impactful, incredible sermon you will ever hear. And I remember thinking, I don't like this guy. (laughs) He's got uh, quite a bit of arrogance to make that claim. Uh, And then he opened up his mouth and without missing one word, he quoted the entire sermon on the mountain. I thought, he got me. He got me. It is one of the most, uh, no doubt, impactful and famous sermons that have ever been preached. Jesus preached this sermon and that should be enough to cause us uh, to lean in uh, with all of our ears, both of them, uh, with all of our hearts to hear what does Jesus have to say when Jesus preaches, uh, we need to listen. Uh, Not only is it Jesus's longest recorded sermon that we have, uh, but by most accounts, it's probably not only his most famous, but the most famous sermon that has ever been preached. Uh, John Stott uh, says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably the best known part of Jesus's teaching, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. So we are here uh, as a church, as God's people to open up God's word, uh, to invite God's spirit, not just to teach us what something says, um, but to give us the grace to truly believe it uh, in the deepest part of our core and our being and then therefore live it out. I think that's the purpose that Jesus preached it. Jesus preached this sermon. Number two, you already heard in this video, uh, this, uh, this sermon that Jesus gave covers a lot of different topics. Uh, Not only is it wildly theological about Jesus and the kingdom of God, but it is very practical. Uh, He covers topics about blessing that we're going to jump in this morning and read about blessing. How many of you like blessings? How many of you would like to be blessed? 
We've come to the right place. Uh, he talks about prayer. How many of you would love to learn some more information about what it truly means to pray? Uh, justice, caring for the needy, uh, the true, God's true law and what it is truly designed to do. Uh, he talks about fasting. Maybe you th- say, well, I've never uh, fasted before, don't know what that is. Doesn't sound like fun to go that long without uh, food. Good news, Jesus is going to teach us about fasting. Uh, he's going to teach us about marriage. How many of y'all would love to have some of Jesus' thoughts on marriage? Whether you're married or single, it would be a good thing to know what Jesus thinks about marriage. Uh, about judging others. How many of you have ever been judged by someone? We all raise our hand. How many of you have ever judged somebody? None of us raise our hand, although we're all guilty of judging. It's going to teach us what in the world are we supposed to think about uh, judging others. Uh, he's going to talk about forgiving others, uh, and he's going to talk about salvation. He covers just a wide variety of things. So Jesus is going to speak into a lot of different corners uh, of our lives. Uh, third thing about this sermon is that it was... When Jesus delivered it, and it is today very countercultural. And when I say countercultural, I don't just mean counter to the kind of non Christian culture. In Jesus' day, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was very counter religious culture. Um, the religious leaders of the day, which would have been uh, when Jesus was preaching, uh, a group called the Pharisees and another group called the Sadducees, and they were kind of the, uh, the, the, the educated religious folks, um, but they were not followers of Jesus, and they had missed really the main point of the Bible and the center of the gospel. And so what Jesus teaches uh, was very counter to just kind of the, the generic religious feelings of the day, which I would say today is just the same thing. Like the generic religious feelings of the day, religion can be defined kind of in, in two different ways. Uh, most of the time, when Jesus talks about religion, it's in a negative sense. Uh, but there is a positive sense in which religion just describes like Christianity is a religion. But when Jesus talks about religion in a bad sense. He's talking about really man's attempt uh, through good works and uh, uh, just working of our own initiative, trying to get towards God and every other religion on the planet in some essence, in some way, is trying to get humanity to, to work our way up towards God. And Jesus is very frustrated with that, one, because it does not work, and two, because he has come down. Um, so it's very counter to the idea that we don't need Jesus, that we are fine, that we're not that broken, that we can fix ourselves, that we're not sinners, we don't need a Savior. And that type of religion, sometimes cloaked in the, the, the name of Christianity in our day is still very much religion, not the gospel. And so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very, very counter-cultural. Uh, religion has to do with uh, external things, trying to manage and change external things that we do so that we can work towards God. The gospel is Jesus coming down, doing everything for us on our behalf, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, saving us by pure, unadulterated grace and mercy, removing our old heart, giving us a new heart so that over time he changes us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's very different. This is what John Calvin had to say about the Sermon on the Mount uh, being counter-religious culture. He says this, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' teaching that contains the doctrine of Christ and a holy life. But that, that, those are two important things. He says this, the summation of this, it's the doctrine of Jesus Christ and, and how to live a holy life. He says the sermon 
was to rescue the law of God from the erroneous teachings of the Pharisees who saw the law only as external acts or things that we do, not as internal attitudes. Just as much as 2,000 years ago, the Sermon on the Mount is a very countercultural way to live because the kingdom of God is different than the value system of the kingdom of the world. Amen? Number four, this describes, I truly believe this after studying for quite a few months, uh, the Sermon on the Mount describes the life that should flow for the Christian from the grace of God. It begins with the grace of God, and when we truly receive the pure, unadulterated grace and mercy of God, that pushes us and moves us into what we call, the theological word for this is sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. Salvation is an event. Sanctification is a process. Salvation is an event. It's, it's, a, it's a moment in time when someone puts their faith in Jesus. They re, we receive the grace of God. We repent and believe. And in a moment, we're saved once and for all because Jesus is that kind of Savior, right? When Jesus saves people, it's a very permanent thing. Amen? Salvation is a long process that begins at the moment of salvation and ends the moment that we close our eyes for the last time, open them, see Jesus, and we're glorified. And it's a long process by which we are learning what it means by grace through the Holy Spirit to live our lives like Jesus and like God designed. I think that's the main thrust of this Sermon on the Mount is to help us live like Jesus. It is the most thorough picture that we have from Jesus that describes what our lives, and by our, I mean those of us who are disciples who have trusted in Christ, we've repented, we believed, what our lives should look like. It truly, not, it just doesn't just lay out for us how we should live, but it truly lays out for us how Jesus lived. Nobody obeyed the Sermon on the Mount nearly as well as Jesus. So, Matthew chapter 5, let's open up and let's begin walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's helpful we talk about this often to the best of your ability to try to imagine yourself, to try to, uh, we say, write yourself into the story, uh, to try to do the best you can to imagine the, the scenery and the setting and the smells and the sights so that you could, like, as, as close as we could get, we can be the recipients there that day listening to the sermon that Jesus gave. And, and, and and Matthew, he really does a good job painting some, some of the picture and some of the details around this sermon. So it makes it easy for us to imagine that we're there that day uh, outside of Jerusalem uh, in Israel on the side of the hill. Thousands of people. Jesus was there. People were excited about him. And uh, he, he had progressed enough in his ministry when, when he spoke. People, people got quiet and people listened. Whether they loved him or they hated him, they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, if you're there, say, Jesus. All right. Say, Sermon on the Mount. Side note, you don't need to know this, but I'll share it anyway. I was uh, typing this this morning, trying to text somebody something, and does your phone ever just automatically correct to something that's dumb and, like, not even close? It corrected this to Sermon O the Mount. So, we're changing this now to Sermon O the Mount. Sorry, you didn't need that. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew says this, seeing the crowds, talking about Jesus, Jesus looked out, he's outside, maybe some rolling hills, maybe small mountain, and he sees the crowds, hundreds and hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people, seeing the crowds, Matthew says, he went up on the mountain, 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That first verse, you get two things. You get a little bit of the location and a little bit of the audience that was there that day. The location, um, Matthew goes out of his way to use a very specific and precise phrase when he says, Jesus went up on the mountain. Did that ring a bell for anybody? Uh, If you are a student of the Old Testament, something should kind of catch your attention because Matthew very, very purposefully is saying word for word something that happened in Exodus when Moses went up on the mountain uh, to get the commands and the law of God and deliver them to the people. And Moses would have been a hero to, to most of the people in the crowd that day. They loved Moses. They know Moses is this iconic figure that stood in some way between God and his people and was a mouthpiece from the top of a mountain to deliver God's law to God's people. And so what Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to not just draw our attention to that, but I think he's trying to show us um, that, that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of something that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I'll read it to you. It says this. So this is way Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy says this. This is God speaking through his prophet. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, talking about Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is Matthew's way of saying, I know that Moses climbed up a mountain, and he was a good prophet, and he spoke for God, but Jesus is the one that we have been looking for. He is the prophet to end all prophets. He is the one that speaks definitively for God. That's why Matthew goes out of his way to say exactly the same phrase that's used of Moses. He went up on the mountain. His audience, we learn in that first verse, uh, there's two really different types of people that made up the entire audience that day. Uh, There were the crowds and the disciples. Did y'all catch that? It says he saw the crowds and then he went up on the mountain. He sat down and he called his disciples to him. And normally, especially in a setting like this that's this big, we're going to have both. There's going to be the crowd that involves everybody. Uh, Some of those are skeptics. Some of those are are, are maybe casual uh, followers of Jesus and kind of want to hear what he has to say, but haven't truly devoted their whole lives uh, to him, or maybe they're enemies of Jesus, or maybe uh, they're just curious about who he is and what he can do for their lives. That's the crowd. There's a lot of people in the crowd when Jesus is teaching, but he calls his disciples to him, and his disciples would have been people that had, uh, the, the, the word disciple means follower, right? An active follower. And so uh, when Jesus describes disciples, that would have been someone that had already heard enough of the gospel that they responded to it. Right, Matthew chapter 4, if you look back just a chapter before, uh, Jesus is preaching uh, to the crowds, to the masses, and he's preaching, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's, he begins to expand the gospel, which is what? People are sinners. We need a savior. Jesus is the only one that fits that bill. If you want to be saved, repent of your sin, confess your need, embrace the, the faith and forgiveness uh, that, and the grace that Jesus offers, and you'll be saved. And so a handful of people said, sounds good, I'm in. And, and their disciples, right? They have repented of their sin. They've confessed their need for a Savior. They've said Jesus is that Savior. And they now have began, like, so salvation for them as an event has happened. 
now they're on this journey of sanctification where they have embraced the gospel. They believe that that the grace of Jesus and his mercy was for them. They're actively following. And it's so, so important for you to know that's the group of people that Jesus directs the Sermon on the Mount to. The whole crowd was there, and everybody heard it, but it was directed and applicable to his disciples. Verse 2, this is how we know that. And he, Jesus, he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and every commentator I've read says them, no doubt, points back to the last preceding noun, which is disciples. Who is Jesus teaching? Not necessarily the crowds, although they all listen, but to the disciples. So my question for you is it's important for you to understand uh, which one you are. If you're just in the crowd, if you're just curious, maybe you've got some friends that are Christians and maybe they've invited you or maybe you've read enough about Jesus to know that you really need to know what he has to say about some things. Or you've seen his impact on history or his impact on a person uh, around you. Like, like if, if you're in the crowd, praise God and, and I'm so glad you're here. But it's important to know that there's a difference between being in the crowd and being a disciple or as, as some have put it, it's a, there's a very big difference. In fact, an eternal difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, right? It's so easy to be a fan. Oh, I like Jesus. I like what he has to say. I like going to church, and I like the effects of, uh, of the gospel around me. But being a fan of Jesus and, and just being part of the crowd, it's not the same thing as being a follower of Jesus that has repented and believed and embraced the gospel and begun a journey of sanctification, so as we walk through this entire sermon, Jesus is, I believe, speaking to disciples, but the invitation of the gospel is open to all people. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying. Uh, Augustine said this uh, about the, the Sermon on the Mount, talking about how it's really directed mainly at disciples. Uh, he said that this, this sermon is the, the perfect measure of the Christian life. And he said this, the command to exhibit, which is what we're about to jump into this fall, Sermon on the Mount, the commands to exhibit the character of our Heavenly Father. He says all of it assumes the doctrine of regeneration, okay? What he means is he's saying when Jesus begins preaching to the disciples, he is assuming that they already have a new heart and they've been regenerated and they believe the gospel. And you, like, I need you to listen and, and pick this up. In the Bible Belt, this is a dangerous thing because a lot of the Sermon on the Mount has to do with how Christians are supposed to live our lives. It, a lot of it is not how you become a Christian. And it's very, very important that you become a Christian before you try to live like a Christian. Y'all with me? Like the Sermon on the Mount, if we just take it out of its context, like, oh, I've got to do this and that and that. No, you need to believe the gospel. And after you believe the gospel, then the Sermon on the Mount is for you. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying. Verse 3, this is the beginning of Jesus' sermon. He opens his mouth, the word of God that was made flesh to dwell among us, begins to preach and to tell us very definitively about the kingdom of heaven. He begins to teach, it says. 
okay? Uh, I want to tease out one more thing before we jump into this sermon. Uh, He says right there in verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, uh, this is another distinction between the crowd and the disciples. In chapter 4, Matthew described what Jesus was doing with the masses when he was sharing the gospel and helping people understand what does it take to become a Christian, to become a disciple. He, he, He described that as preaching. Matthew chapter 4, I think it's verse 17. Yeah, Matthew describes Jesus' talking to the masses like this. He says, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus is talking about the gospel for the non-Christian to become a Christian, Matthew describes it as preaching. But then a chapter later, he's talking to people who have embraced the gospel. He He says, teach. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, he's not preaching the gospel to the lost, he's preaching a sanctification to the saved. And he starts out like this, verse three, blessed. Do you know I almost cried this week when I started thinking about that? I mean, he could have opened the, the, the most impactful sermon in the history of the world in a variety of ways. He could have, I mean, I thought like if I, this is probably a dangerous thing, but like if I was Jesus and I was giving what I knew would be the most impactful sermon and famous sermon of all time, how would I start it? You know, and, and I got a whole bunch of things that I won't bore you with if I came up with, but Jesus begins with, with blessing. And I thought about that over and over this week, and I'm like, oh man, like what an unbelievable way for Jesus to start as he just declares, like what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower? I think of Jesus, and you're going to see this throughout the next few weeks. If Jesus was forced into a corner and said, Jesus, I want you to describe the essence of being a Christian, and you only get one word, he gets to blessed. They're blessed. They are blessed people in a variety of different blessings. It's the first word out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, We call it the Beatitudes. Everybody say Beatitudes. Uh, This list of blessings that Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount with, as a package deal, we call all of those blessings uh, the Beatitudes, uh, which is, uh, it's a Latin word that means blessedness or like the state of being being joyful or being blessed. Uh, Literally, it means it's like filled with joy. It's used nine times in these nine verses, uh, and and Jesus is using it to talk about our abiding state as Christians, regardless of our circumstances, right? I mean, he's going to even say, blessed are those who are persecuted, which is not a fun thing to experience, but still, even in the midst of being persecuted for Jesus' sake, our general state is that we have been and we are incredibly blessed, This is not, this is important distinction to know. This is not a formula to follow and you will be blessed. We can't read the Beatitudes and says, blessed are those who mourn. Okay, I need to go find something to mourn and then I'll be blessed. It's not kind of an antidote to how we can get blessings. Instead, what it truly is, it's a description of those who belong to the kingdom. It's a description of those who belong to Jesus. And Jesus begins with blessing. The apostle Paul says, for those who are in Christ, we have received what? Every, every spiritual blessing, we're a, a blessed people. And I thought about that this week, and I couldn't get past that one word. I'm like, I mean, Jesus was preaching. He's trying to describe us inside the gospel in relation to Jesus in the kingdom of God. 
and, and his sermon is just dripping with, with blessings because we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessings. He talks about, these are just a list of the Beatitudes that we'll look at in the next few weeks. Uh, why are we blessed? Because ours is the kingdom. Why? Because we belong to Jesus. Because Jesus has forgiven our sins, he's washed them away, we belong to him, we're blessed because the kingdom is ours, we're blessed because we shall be comforted, it's a promise we'll read in a moment. We will inherit the earth. Will everybody inherit the earth? No. Those who have responded to the gospel, disciples will inherit the earth. We will be filled, Jesus says, or satisfied, some of your versions say. We will obtain mercy. We will see God, and we shall be called the sons of God. If you're in Christ, you are richly, deeply, infinitely, eternally blessed. And that's where Jesus starts. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first of the Beatitudes. We're only looking at two this morning, and we'll keep going next week. But just to let you know, we got a, a, quite a few weeks of blessings. Amen? Blessings. Jesus says first out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, he's describing the life of someone who is a Christian, who's a disciple, who has listened to the sermon of Matthew four seventeen, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We repented, we believed, we received grace. Now he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean then uh, to be poor in spirit? That's probably not a phrase um, that we use or hear often uh, in our daily lives, uh, and yet uh, it's incredibly important because he's describing someone who theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, poor in spirit truly means to have a humble opinion of ourself, okay? To be poor in spirit means to think lowly or very humbly or biblically, to think very accurately about our state without Jesus. Um, Albert Barnes, who is a, a commentator and was a pastor, wrote this about what does it mean to be poor in spirit. Don't, don't miss this. Barnes says, to be poor in spirit is to have a humble opinion of ourselves and to be sensible that we are sinners. Not just that we sin, but like we are sinners and we have no righteousness of our own. As the Apostle Paul says, you remember in Philippians chapter 3, I have no righteousness of my own. All my righteousness I have was gifted to me by Christ. Uh, to be willing to be saved only by the rich grace and the mercy of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. What's, sometimes it's, it's easier to, to, to see or to understand something when we look at its opposite. Uh, so the opposite of being poor in spirit is being proud of heart. And being proud of heart would be saying something like, uh, I'm not really that bad of a person. I mess up a, a little bit here and there, but I'm not like at my nature. I'm not a sinner. I don't really need a savior. I don't, I don't need somebody to come to me and rescue me. I can kind of, you know, fix a little bit on my own. I can kind of do a little bit here and there and kind of work my way up to God. Like that's being proud in spirit. And Jesus doesn't say that that type of person inherits the kingdom of heaven. He says what? The poor in spirit will for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's my question. This is an important question. Are you poor in spirit or are you proud in heart? Do you know that you need a savior or do you think you don't really need one that much? Jesus Christ said, 
like really that attitude splits the, the world into two different places with, with two different, very different destinations. The poor in spirit describes someone who has heard the message Jesus preached in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they responded like the, the, this uh, tax collector did. Uh, this tax collector in Luke chapter 18, maybe you remember this story, but uh, he, he, he heard the gospel and became very poor in spirit. And he said this, uh, he said, would not, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. He didn't have any excuses. He didn't have any, anything that just kind of puffed him up. He just said, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus couldn't even lift up his eyes. He was, he was poor in spirit. Like, are you truly poor in spirit where you have got to the point that you have asked Jesus to forgive you and save you because you can't do it on your own? Or are you thinking, you know what, I'm just, I don't think I'm that bad. I just don't think that I'm at, at my core broken. It's a very, very, very big difference. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And many of you, like that jives with you. Like, I remember, I've been there. I remember the first time I was poor in spirit when I heard the gospel and realized, you know what? I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't change myself. It seems like the least common denominator in all my problems is me. And you remember, like, I just, I need Jesus to save me because I've tried and I'm not doing real good. And you, you remember that moment. Since then, you've been reminded to be poor in spirit. This is what Jesus says about you. If you've been poor in spirit enough to embrace Jesus as a Savior, he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus mentions it there the first time, and you need to know this is a very, very dominant theme throughout this entire sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus talks a lot about what is the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like uh, to be a, uh, a member, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What is happening when uh, through the gospel and the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven is invading the kingdom of earth? Uh, this is used at least eight times. It's a major theme. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, throughout this whole sermon, uh, Jesus talks about the, the blessings of those who are in the kingdom, right? He talks about uh, the character of those who are in the kingdom, the character and the integrity and the lives that we should have. He talks about uh, our relationship to the kingdoms of the world. He talks about our relationship to the king. He talks about our relationship with each other if we're in the same kingdom. He talks about basically when, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about God's rule and God's reign and his design being lived out, not only in heaven, but on earth as it is in heaven. You need to know that that's, that's a big theme of this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, second of the Beatitudes of the blessings that Jesus pronounces. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, again, this is not a generic thing that if you've ever mourned over anything that uh, there's like this promise of deep comfort. He's talking about a very spiritual thing, a spiritual mourning or a mourning over uh, the state of us and our sin and the brokenness of the world. And those who truly recognize the deep depravity that we have in the world is broken. 
Jonathan read it just a moment ago in Romans chapter 8 that the, the creation itself is groaning and longing because it's, it's broken and needs fixed and needs redemption. Do y'all remember uh, when David and Bathsheba sinned? Maybe you're brand new to the Bible, new to uh, Christianity. David uh, was a king over Israel about a thousand years BC, uh, and he's actually got the the title uh, the a man after God's own heart. So he's a he was a good guy uh, overall, just an incredible king and a godly man. And he had some moments where he was uh, was frail and gave into temptation and did some horrible horrible things. Uh, he sinned with this woman, uh, slept with her, had a baby, had her husband uh, killed, and in the midst of all that, God gets a hold of David's heart, and in Psalm 51, uh, what you have is David mourning or grieving or being broken over his sin, and I think that's one of the best pictures about what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Listen to what David said as he was processing through and grieving and repenting through what he had done. Psalm 51, verse 17, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, being just a, a religious external thing. I just, I'm not just going to come and kill a, a dove and this is going to be over. He's like, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, Paul says, are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. What is he saying? David is saying he's, he's mourning over his sin and what he had done. And not just the effects of, in his life and around him, over the effects of what he had done with his relationship between him and God. Listen, it's, it's very different to mourn over your sin because you don't like its effects than it is to mourn over your sin because it has broken the heart of God and severed the relationship between you and him. That's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in some way, these two build upon one another because I think uh, without being poor in spirit, it's virtually impossible to mourn over our sin. The two go hand in hand. But there's such an incredible promise for those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And for those who truly mourn, those are the ones who Jesus says will be comforted. I read a commentator that phrased it this way. He said, those who truly feel the, the deepness and the hurt of being separated from from God because of sin, those are the ones who get restored to it through the gospel. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The next few weeks, we're going to walk through all these blessings and these beatitudes and really what Jesus describes as just the, the state of those who belong to him, who are disciples of him. And, and there's a lot of things <clears throat> that he's going to give us about how to live our lives. And just so you know, uh, you and I are going to do these very imperfectly. 
uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna try we're gonna live try to live our lives to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus. Um, but we're going to mess up. We're gonna miss the mark. We're gonna fail uh, over and over and over. And I want to remind you that the true epitome of really this Sermon on the Mount is not just what we're trying to to do as we live like Jesus, but it's a picture of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, listen to what Oswald Chambers says. He says, if Jesus is a teacher only, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard that we cannot come anywhere near. But if being born again from above, we know him first as a savior, then we know that he did not come to teach us only. He came to make us what he teaches us that we should be. And the Sermon on the Mount, Chamber says, is a statement of the life that we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. I phrased it this way. It's that this sermon, it's a picture of the life that God desires Christians to have that flows from God's transforming grace. It's a blessing both to those who it changes and the people who get to witness it around them. It's the message of Jesus' description about the kind of people that not only God wants us to be, but that he is committed through the Holy Spirit to making us until he is finished and we see Jesus. I want N.T. Wright to have the last word because I believe the ultimate fulfillment uh, of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ himself. It's not just about how we're supposed to live, but it's a description of Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, Jesus himself, as the gospel story goes on to its dramatic conclusion, meaning uh, not just the life, but then the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, triumphing over Satan's sin, death, the grave. Jesus himself, as the gospel story goes on to its dramatic conclusion, he lives out the same message of the Sermon on the Mount. He is the light of the world. He is the salt of the earth. He loves his enemies and gave his life for them. He is lifted up on a hill so that the world can see him. See, all of the things that Jesus invites Christians into to do and to learn and to be and to become, Jesus himself is the epitome of those in a way that we can never be, we can never imagine. When he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching about his own character. When he calls us to be the salt and light of the earth, he is the salt and light of the earth. When he calls us to be a city on the hill, he's the city on the hill. The ultimate fulfillment of this entire sermon is the person, the work, and the character of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Nobody was more poor in spirit than Christ. Philippians talks about the humility it took for him to step off of his throne and become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for sin. If you remember reading Jesus mourning over the brokenness and sin and the effects of sin, nobody has mourned more deeply about the brokenness and the pain and the grief that sin causes and the severed relationship than, than, than Jesus. Are the meek, blessed are the meek. No, nobody is more meek than Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. No one is more righteous than Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. Nobody comes close to being as merciful as Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know this. Nobody is as close to Jesus as being pure in heart as he is. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Paul says like, like Jesus came to bring peace and to do away with the enmity that we had between us and a holy God. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, the peacemaker of all peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Nobody, not even close, even someone who was persecuted and martyred for their faith was not as righteous and sinless as Jesus and was not persecuted as deeply as him. The light of the world is sitting on a hill. The, the sermon that Jesus preaches is a declaration of who he is and what he has come to do. And so our invitation is to first hear his sermon in Matthew four seventeen: Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Confess our sin. Confess our need. Embrace the grace and the mercy of Jesus and after we do, Jesus teaches us what then it means to live like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom of this world. And that's what we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to these next many months. So let's pray together. Jesus, you stand above all your character and your humility your meekness, your compassion, your love, your righteousness, all are, are miles beyond any of us. And so you stand, Jesus, in a category all alone unto yourself. And Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself. You became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you might stand in our place. God, when we feel like maybe we're not that bad, I pray that you would remind us that the cross begs to differ. And when we perhaps doubt your love or your compassion or your mercy, may we be reminded that the cross begs to differ, that you have an endless amount of grace and mercy for those who come poor in spirit. So Father, I pray that you would convince us that being poor in spirit if we belong to you, is that's the richest place to be. I pray that you might stir up in us a, a poverty that leads us to an incredible fountain and flowing blessings from Jesus through the gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your salvation, for committing to making us like you. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that maybe has, has heard some things about Jesus and some things about the gospel, but never truly responded personally in their heart to it. I pray that you would draw them in this morning, that your grace would be truly irresistible for them. God, that your dying in their place on the cross would convince them of your love for them and their need for you. And God, we thank you that all of our growth and sanctification is driven from your grace and from your acceptance, not for it. I pray that this series would open our eyes truly to the blessings that we have in Christ. You are our only hope and our treasure and the rock on which we stand. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray all these things through your name and your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. 
If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.